So Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 through to chapter 2 verse 4. And this is the word of the Lord. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Amen. Now, before we study this together, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time in his word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to study your word together now, we ask that you would work in our hearts and minds. We pray that we might... Not only see these truths that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and by extension us today, but that we might know how to apply them to our lives. Grant us wisdom to do this, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I've titled the sermon, United in Joy. As we look at this text of uh, the end of chapter 1, start of chapter 2 of Philippians, uh, we've got two points. Now, I was going to have three points, I really was, I promise. But the other uh, two points of the, the first one, so the first two points were pretty much very similarly worded, similarly phrased. I thought, rather than paying you by having a semantic difference in point titles, I'll combine those first two so we now just have two points this morning. Uh, so first we're going to see living in Christ, and then secondly, when we get into it, we're going to see what it is to have lives of worth. Now as we uh, get into this today, I want you to keep something in mind. What we're picking up today, we're picking up after that incredible section we studied last week where Paul said in verse 21 of chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's something that underscores the whole of Philippians, but it's particularly present in the part of Philippians that we read today. Paul is basically springboarding from from that beautiful section which concluded at verse 26. He's summarising that while also moving through to new content through the rest of his letter. Using this to progress as well as summarise. Now Paul is writing to a church that really has been of tremendous blessing to him and quite likely been a great blessing to a whole bunch of other faithful people as well. But they're still reasonably new converts and he wants them to not just know things about God, He doesn't just want them to know the attitudes that a Christian to have, like what he said, to live as Christ and to die as gain, to to live knowing that as Christians we have that win-win situation of either we go to heaven or we get to serve God as we continue here on earth. Paul wants them not just to, to know those attitudes, he wants to give them some practical pointers to put those things into place. And that's really what these verses today are all about. 
So we start off by looking at living in Christ in verses 27 to 30. And in verse 27, there is a slight shift, even though it's a summary of what's come before, there's a slight shift in Paul's writing. See, from verse, uh, verse 12 through to 26, Paul's really sharing an update of his mission journey. And he moves in verse 27 from talking about what, what God's been doing through his mission journey, as well as Paul's personal confidence in the Lord, uh, confidence that what, what God would do in the future, to bring the focus back a little bit more onto the Philippians themselves. And he starts that off, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That is a big statement to make. And that's where Paul starts us off today. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. This is the first thing that Paul wants them to do. You've seen how I've lived. You've heard how I've lived on the mission field. You've heard how I've lived serving God. I've tried to make my conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, guys, throwing the ball into your court, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul knows that some of them were were holding out hope, a hope that that he seemed to have that Paul would be able to visit to Philippi again and be able to, to see each other face to face. Paul's spoken about the value of this happening. But he's saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel whether I can get over to your neck of the woods or not. Paul going to be with them or not should not have an impact on this. Would it be disappointing if they can't see Paul again? Yes. But that shouldn't prevent them living for God. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Now, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. That's a very cool thing to say. I love it. It's one of those punchy things you can say to encourage somebody who's going through a rough patch. But what does it actually mean? I'm not sure about you, but I find myself sometimes using Christian language to say something without actually saying a whole heap. Fortunately for us, Paul's not like that. If we just had only that your conduct be worthy of the gospel, we'd perhaps be left trying to figure out really what's going on here. But Paul does actually explain what he means. And he goes on to say that What it means to live worthy of the gospel is to be united in being steadfast. Steadfastness is an attribute that is pleasing to God. Paul brings it up again in chapter 4, verse 1. They had to be steadfast as Christians. Now, a few years ago, I used to annoy people who told me I was being stubborn by saying, no, I'm just steadfast. There's some similarities. I don't think stubborn is particularly pleasing to God a lot of the time. Steadfast is pleasing to God. There is a difference between the two. We can't confuse the two. So what they're to do, they are to stand firm together. They're to be steadfast together. They're to be steadfast and unshakable from their grounding in no one other and nothing else than Jesus Christ. What they are called to do in living out their faith starts off with unity in Jesus, which is something that God is working in them to achieve. They are to work to this end but they also have God working in them to this end as well. This is a very, very important thing for them to do. Now we see that they face adversaries. In the face of adversaries, there's something to the saying, there's strength in numbers, isn't there? Paul's telling them to be steadfast in their faith. He's telling them to be united together. He's telling them to come together in the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. One commentator says that the unity that 
the Philippians and we are being directed to is steering our attention to the very real blessing of unity that God has given to the church. Now, sometimes we realise our blessings more when we don't have something. We've felt that over the last few weeks, haven't we? We know the joy that it is to meet together in this hall on a Sunday morning to worship God. But you take that away and you feel that even more keenly when you get back together again. We do sadly see times where unity is lacking in the body of Christ. We see damage, the damage that that does to, to churches, to families, to individuals, to friendships, and none of it is good. When there is a lack of unity, God is not honoured. Now we know those wonderful words that Joseph speaks near the end of the book of Genesis, where he says that what man intends for evil, God can use for good. We have a great God. But just because God can turn bad things for good doesn't mean we should accept doing bad things. We should strive for unity. Because those times where we don't have that, where we see division, contention, conflict, just not unity in the church, if you break it down to its core, most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time you will find that what's caused that lack of unity is matters of preference or comfort. There's uh, some groups in the US who study church health issues and this is what they've found. And in these instances where it's not matters of doctrine that are causing issues in the life of the church that are affecting unity in the church, it's always worded as spiritually high language, uh, altruistically, but it's often the steadfastness that we try to achieve where unity is not really there is not by clinging to our grounding in Christ, but by attempting to be steadfast in the knowledge of what we prefer. There's a temptation that we face, isn't it, to go with what's comfortable, to go with what's easy, to go with what we prefer. But Paul's encouraging the church here to have a very high view of unity. It's an incredibly high view of unity. And if it's proper unity, it must be based on God alone on God's word and what he has revealed of himself to us in his word. Now, perhaps what I've said there makes you wonder if being united in godly steadfastness just means that we roll over and play dead when somebody disagrees with us or when somebody challenges our beliefs for the sake of what we might call unity. Just... Act as if there's not problems. Now you guys know, because I've, I've preached on this before, I hope you can remember my sermons, although I won't be offended if you can't remember all of them. You guys know that I, I, I do think that we should sharpen one another up. And to sharpen one another up, as iron sharpens iron, there are times where we call out dodgy behaviours, dodgy beliefs, dodgy attitudes at times. I'm not unsaying any of those things, but Paul's focus here today, which is why I'm focusing on it, is unity in God. What I am saying is that unity in the church and among believers is incredibly crucial and it must be fought for because it's a wonderful blessing from God. It is an example to the world watching us of what it is to be in God and it builds up, edifies, encourages and strengthens the church. And that is important when we look at what Paul writes here because there are those who quite simply will not be united with Christians. 
verses 28 to 30, Paul tells the Philippians not to be terrified by their adversaries. The word terrified or intimidated there is one that in Greek refers to the imagery of horses. Now, it's amazing how often Greeks talk about horses. You know, I tried to explain to my almost 18-month-year-old niece that the word for hippopotamus in Greek is a combination of water and horse. The Greeks thought that hippos were water horses. She didn't understand what I was saying. But there's imagery that comes up a lot. In this case, well, I actually have a point to this. Uh, in this case, the word of being terrified or intimidated is language in the Greek that draws to mind an uncontrollable stampede of horses. Do not respond to your adversaries in a terrified or intimidated way because the result of that is almost as if this wild stampede of horses comes through and you can just imagine the destruction that that would cause, the fear, the trembling, the anxiety, all of those things that accompany it. That is not how the believer is to respond to adversaries. We are to be unterrified. We are to be confident in the Lord, both present and future. Right now, Paul is saying to the Philippians, right now, today, as you're reading this letter, tomorrow, whatever happens tomorrow, don't be terrified by your adversaries. There will be those who are not united with us, who cannot be steadfast in unity with us because they are outside of the salvation that God has given us. Now we hope and pray they might be brought into that. But until the Spirit works in them, we can't be united with them in this way that Paul's talking about. So if there are those out to attack Christians who belong to Christ, we should strengthen our unity with one another in God. It does not make sense for us to have infighting in regards to what it does to us, what it does to the church. And it doesn't make sense in terms of us living for Christ in all situations, does it? We must be united. We must be steadfast in our unity. And it really is a beautiful, lasting unity. And you contrast that to some other forms of unity that we see out there. Uh, One example of that would be a few of us, uh, Dave organised to, to give Guangwan a bit of culture the other week. We went to the Broncos game. Now, the Broncos are sitting 15th out of 16 on the NRL ladder at the moment. There's a whole lot of people out there united in their support for the Broncos. But you read the comments on social media or in the newspapers, it's the players' fault, it's the coaches' fault, It's the recruitment and retention team's fault. It's the board's fault. The CEO has no idea what he's doing. There's not really a whole heap of unity there, is there? There's united support for an idea of the Broncos winning a game, but when that doesn't happen, it doesn't last. That's not the unity Paul's talking about here. He is talking about a lasting unity based on our eternal God and his eternal work that he has done for us. Christian unity is based on God Almighty and the finished work of Christ on the cross, granting us salvation from sin. It has depth. And that depth leads us not only to strong unity, but strong convictions about what we believe. 
when people outside of the church apply the blowtorch in the belly, as we might say, in terms of the pressure they apply to Christians, the, the, the woeful mistreatment that they, they force onto Christians, we are to stand not only united, but stand strong in our convictions. To do the, other, to do the opposite is to be terrified, like that stampede of horses. To do otherwise is to allow those who oppose Christ to think they're one. To think that that is proof of, of our perdition. Or, or, or destruction is another way, word we could say instead of perdition. I think they've won our witness is not as full as it could be if we fall into terror. But when we withstand those pressures without compromising our beliefs, the opposite could not be more true. Living in Christ is a huge blessing. Now that might sound like an odd thing to say, given the fact there are pressures, given the fact that the Philippians who Paul's writing to face persecution, given the fact that we see hardships today, and while we're not necessarily persecuted in Australia, we know of our brothers and sisters who trust God around the world who are persecuted, it might sound odd to say that living in Christ is a huge blessing. Basically, verses 28 and 29 show us the hardships that we do face as Christians in the world. We must be real about that, but look at verse 30. Verse 30, Paul says that faithful believers who have stood firm on the promises and the finished work of Christ will have the same conflict that is in him. Now, conflict doesn't sound great. But the conflict Paul is talking about is exactly what he was talking about in verses 21 through 26. That he didn't know which was better. He still wasn't sure which one he'd choose. Which was the preference? To keep living here on earth for Christ now or to be with God in glory forever. The blessing of magnifying Christ and Christ being magnified through him now or going and enjoying perfection forever. That is a conflict that Paul's talking about here. We can't choose when we die. That is God's call. That is in God's sovereign hands. But we will face this same conflict that Paul does. Which do we prefer? To be with God now or to continue serving Christ that he might be glorified, that he might be magnified. Living in Christ does come with hardships. The Philippians knew this. We know this. It also comes with unity with other Christians. And unity with God, who is the most sure foundation ever against the pressures we face. We should know the same truth for ourselves that Paul knew for himself. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Things are often hard, but there is hope, always hope, for the Christian who stands fast in his or her conviction. So stand fast. 
be united with God, be united with one another, and have strong convictions about the word of God. This equips us to stand against those sometimes terrifying adversaries. And then we move into chapter 2. After three and two-thirds of a sermon, we have finally made it through a full chapter of Philippians. Bit of a milestone, isn't it? We're going to look at the first four verses here. As we get into chapter 2, and we see Paul talking now about what it really is to have lives of worth, we see one of those awesome words in the New Testament. Therefore. As we go through what the therefores Paul has are, it might seem like an odd list, but it captures the reality of the hardships as well as the joys of the Christian. If, if, if. Now that if is as hypothetical in the Greek as it is in the English. If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, perhaps the Philippians, perhaps us, are, are feeling the weight of those who stand against us right now. Perhaps those, those feelings of joy and freedom and the, the liberation that it truly is to live for God in all things don't particularly come first and foremost to our minds this morning. Paul is very gracious and gentle with how he writes this. But notice he doesn't just say, if there's lots, if there's any. If there's any, if there's even a small amount of these things to fulfill his joy. To fulfill his joy. Now you ask yourself, is there any amount of those things for you? Even just the smallest, barest amount of those things, if there are those things, then the therefore applies for you. That we are to fulfill Paul's joy and we are to fulfill the joy of one another. Now when we look at chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, I want to say the things that Paul wants us to know are not in the wrong order. But in terms of the order in which we apply them to our lives, you'd probably apply chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 first and then you'd see chapter 1 verses 27 to 30 come into effect. It's almost like he's first dealt with as a, as a hypothesis in science. If you've ever done a science experiment at school, you can ask me afterwards why our class stopped doing fire experiments in year 12 because of a certain fire incident. I can talk about that later. But what you do in science, you sit down, you come up with a hypothesis. We combine these things, we think this is going to be the outcome of it. And then you go back to the start and you begin working through it. Well, it's a little bit like that for Paul. He started with the outcome. In verses 27 to 30, this is what is produced, steadfastness, unity, strong convictions. That's what he starts off with, and then he goes back to the roots, the, the, the origins of it in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And sometimes it's really helpful to, to have the motivation of what it looks like before we're told, this is a groundwork you've got to do. It's not wrong what Paul's done here, I find it very helpful personally. But to that word, awesome, it's used here... So Paul can return to something he's been lightly touching on in chapters 27 to 30, verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. But he grabs it now with both hands, and that is worthiness. Now, Alec Mottier says in his commentary that if you were to put chapters 1, verse 27 through to 
chapter 2, verse 2, in one sentence, you'd have something like this. Paul saying this. I have a single desire that your daily life should match the worth of the gospel. Well, that's, that's a massive thing to say. But what is the gospel? Sometimes we condense the gospel to, to purely being what happened on the cross when Jesus died on the cross and was raised back to life. The gospel Paul's talking about here is the, the full scope of Scripture. Creation and God's sovereignty on display there. His holiness revealed through those things that he made. The redemptive history that began after the fall and is still happening now. The Messiah who is God incarnate who gave it all so that that we could have it all. The gospel is eternal life for those called by the Father, covered in the blood of the Son and sanctified by the inworking of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is all about the things that our triune God has done, is doing and will do. And we are to live worthy of that. That is massive. But as we consider the gospel, this is why we can have such strong conviction in the face of enemies who cause such fear that it promotes horse-like stampedes in response. This is why we, have, why we can stand in steadfast unity with one another, because our awesome God who rules over everything is working everything out to his end. If there is any of those things in verse 1, fulfill Paul's joy by being like-minded and having the same love being of one accord and of one mind. As I said, we may be struggling with hardships. Right now, we may be struggling with things that make it joy seem just a little bit further out than we'd like it to be. We face different circumstances. But if there's any of those things, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any fellowship of the Holy Spirit, any affection and mercy, if there's any of those things, then we do know. I'm sure we can recall, even if it's not the first thing that comes to mind right now, I'm sure we can at least recall the joy that it is to live for God, the joy that it is to be part of this. And when we struggle to find that joy, think of our lives. Examine your heart. When we do that, it doesn't take too long to find things we'd be ashamed of, does it? Despite everything in our life that says we are unworthy of the attentions and the affections of God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to save us from those very sins that made us unworthy to be in his presence. Is that not something we can find joy in? Is it not of joy to us that our sins have been no barrier or are no longer a barrier between us and God because God has worked salvation in us and that he continues to work in us and through us? 
Because of this, Paul says, live worthy of the gospel. Because the gospel is perfect and flawless in every single way. That is to be how we are to live, perfectly and flawlessly trusting in God. Fulfill my joy, Paul says. And how do we do that? We do that by being of one mind. Not about whether Ford or Holden is better or Queensland or New South Wales or Australia or New Zealand. Now, I've got opinions about those things. And if you disagree, you're probably wrong. We're allowed to have some banter on those sorts of points. But where the gospel is concerned, be of one mind. And act accordingly. Support each other as we share the gospel with each other. And even as we share the gospel with those who might terrify us. And there are some simple ways to do this. It's a big task. We don't always live up to this. We're a church who even in the last few years have had struggles with unity. But when we look around on Sundays, I can honestly say I see a bunch of people who work to this end. There are those here who quietly, before we went into lockdown a few weeks ago, printed off bulletins and prayer news and delivered them to those who wouldn't have had access to them otherwise. Is that not living with one another to achieve the unity that God's talking about here, that Paul is talking about? When I look around on Sunday mornings, I genuinely see a bunch of people growing in these ways. I see a whole bunch of people, myself included, who say that is the goal, to live worthy of the gospel. We can't do it on our own. So we ask God to help us. And that is evidence that we are on the right track. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. I just know myself and I can say me being part of this church means this is not a perfect church. But it does mean that by God's grace we are on the right track in living together. There is room to grow, so find those areas to grow, but keep striving for this to live in gospel unity, to live worthy of the gospel. So preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. I know when we read the Bible, it's often, I'm not sure if you guys ever find this, but you think, oh, that would be great for this person to hear. That's often the time I most need to hear it. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to one another. Talk about God as much as you can and truly look to the interests of others, not being self-serving and not being acting in conceit. Oh, let's not do those things. Truly look to the interests of others. Now, this isn't natural for us since the fall. But praise God that he did not leave us in our mess. Praise God that he works in us to make these things possible. Now, it might sound as if we have a long road to go. We do. But we've also come a long way since the moment of our salvation by God's grace, haven't we? Be joyful for that. Be joyful as you consider the work that God has done in you that allows for more unity and more steadfastness. Is your joy being fulfilled in the Lord? Because that's where it should be fulfilled. And how good is it? How good is it that people like us can be united to God and united with one another in the joy of salvation? Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word that we have read today. We pray, O God, that you would work in us to the ends that Paul writes here. We pray that we might be humble before one another. We pray that we might be humble before you, most importantly. We pray that we would continually search for those ways to glorify and magnify your name, that you might receive glory and honour and praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.